there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. And now the third title, Accepting a Yes or a No. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is the first petition. The second one, thy kingdom come, the third, thy will be done. And then from those huge, broad generalities, which we don't always feel as though we recognize the answers to, we come down to the very humble human petition, give us this day our daily bread which is an acknowledgement that we are in need, we personally. Even if we can sort of dismiss as dim uncertainties all that may be involved in the answering of the first three petitions, we certainly can't dismiss as a dim uncertainty the petition, give us this day our daily bread. Again, we are acknowledging the fact that we are children, we are dependent. One of the things that most draws out our deepest maternal instincts the minute we see that first little child is the sense of total helplessness of the child. And you know that without you, that child would be in big trouble. No, cute, no creature that God has ever made, I suppose, is as helpless, as far as I understand it, as a human baby. You know how animals are. You watch a calf be born, you can't believe how fast that little creature staggers up onto those wobbly legs. And in very short order, they find their way to the food all by themselves. And that seems to be the case with, with all animals. I guess otherwise they, they wouldn't make it at all. But God has so ordained that our children are totally helpless and totally dependent upon us for a long time. And the same thing is true as we recognize God as our Father. We are always totally dependent. We have nothing that he doesn't give us, including our very next breath. So we're now asking the Lord to look upon our human needs. But I do want to expand it much beyond the mere physical supply which most of us have experienced most of our lives. There probably are some people here that know what real hunger is like, but I suppose there are very few. And I've had very few experiences myself. I have been on a mountain climb when I thought I was gonna die of thirst. And on one or two occasions in the jungle, I haven't had what I thought was quite enough to eat, but I'm still here to tell the tale. So obviously it was enough, there's always enough. But I remember one time traveling with some Indians on a trail, and they we they got lost. I should say I would I would always have gotten lost if I weren't with Indians. But it was very unusual for Indians to get lost, and somehow we missed the trail, and it took us many many longer hours than we had expected to get where we were going. And it got to the point where we were literally collapsing about every ten steps, which was an unusual experience for me. I. Just never thought my strength would run out. But most of us, most of the time, have experienced 
abundance of material things. But let's think about acceptance of the lot that God gives us, the conditions under which we live. I'm the first to admit that I really know very little about suffering. When I began thinking about writing a book on the subject of suffering, I thought, who do I think I am to be writing on this subject when I compare my own troubles with those of the people that write me letters with the most appalling and unbelievable stories of suffering. Well, I just received a couple of weeks ago a very remarkable testimony. It was really, it, it filled one of those blank books that you buy in a bookstore, um, a fairly good-sized book that a woman had written out by hand telling me the story of her own extremely dysfunctional family and horribly abused childhood. I could hardly believe it, but the wonderful thing, and I wished I could have read you the whole story, was the acceptance that this woman has learned and the joy and the beauty in her life that have come out of that unimaginable experience of a little child. It's the great secret is acceptance. When I learned that my husband Jim was dead, I thought of a poem that I had memorized written by Amy Carmichael, that great Irish missionary to India, entitled In Acceptance Lieth Peace. And I began then to try to put that into practice. I had never had any really big thing in my life to accept, except the experience of having to wait for Jim Elliott for, for five and a half years. Um, that was a pretty big thing when it was going on, but the first major crisis in my life was, of course, the death of my husband. And there had been three things in my first year as a missionary before I married Jim, which had sort of broken me in a little bit more easily than I might have been broken in if I hadn't had those experiences. And they were all experiences of loss, what to me at the time were major losses, but nothing in, in comparison to losing Jim. And as I stood there by the radio, having just heard that all five of the men had been indeed speared to death, I realized that I really only had two choices. I was either going to accept this new stage in my life of widowhood or I was going to reject it. Now, all you can do is reject it emotionally, but that's not going to bring your husband back, is it? And there are many situations which we know we cannot change. And those are the situations that I'm talking about right now, not the things that can and ought to be changed. There are many things that can and ought to be changed. There are many things that can be changed but ought not to be changed. For example, if you're not satisfied with your husband and you'd like to redecorate him from the cellar to the dome, um, some of you may be old enough to remember this song from that movie and play My Fair Lady. 
and uh, Rex Harrison says, you let a woman in your life and your serenity is through, she'll redecorate your home from the cellar to the dome and then go on to the enthralling fun of overhauling you. <laughs> and uh, she'll have, let's see, she'll have a booming, boisterous family that descends on you en masse. She'll have a large Wagnerian mother with a voice that shatters glass. I remember how I said that. So we, all of us, I suppose, who have or have had husbands can think of a, very, a few ways in which, now I know that the people that are down here in the front know that there's been a fly <laughs> crawling around my glasses throughout all of the morning and he is back right now. Now this is not my choosing. I did not summon this fly. And it is entirely possible that Satan has sent him here just to distract all of you. It doesn't bother me nearly as much as it bothers you. If we had a fly swatter, I would ask that it be brought up here, but uh, I don't know that it would do any good. Anyway, let's just assume the fact that if Satan did send it, God has a purpose in it. And we'll leave it at that. You know, I did have to sing one time in a wedding and as I came to the long-held long note, I was singing uh, Panis Angelicus, and, you know, uh, O Lord Most Holy, and at the, the point where I was holding one word for a long time, a fly that had been flying all the way around my face, round and around and around, literally went down my throat. <laughs> and I could neither, I, I couldn't finish the note, and throughout the rest of the wedding ceremony and the reception, I could not get that up or down. It's right there. So I don't know whether the Lord is particularly needing to test me on a small and irritating thing, but do you really believe that God is sovereign? You know, is God in control of this miserable fly? He's right on the microphone right now. God made him, didn't he, for some reason. <clears throat> I had a choice either to say yes, Lord, or no, Lord. Now, which do you think is the route to peace? It is the only route to peace. And I believe it's a shortcut to peace. You can work through, as modern psychiatrists would tell you to do, the five stages of grief. They say you can work through them. And it may cost you a lot of money if you decide to go to somebody that's going to carry you through. It may not cost you a lot of money, but I do believe it'll take you a very long time. Now, back when I lost my first husband, nobody had ever heard of the five stages of grief. It was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that came up with them later, I think, in the 60s. But Amy Carmichael's words were so simple, and they fit so perfectly what I find in this book. In acceptance lieth peace. And you know what it says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is an act of spiritual worship. And I'm mixing up several different translations here because I like particularly that act of spiritual worship. And then Philip's translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. 
But let God remold your mind from within, and you will find that you will become men of mature character with the right sort. Sorry, I'm mixing up two different scriptures there. That's from James 1. Uh, it ends up with, then you will be able to discern the will of God, that it is good, acceptable, and perfect, or that it moves toward the goal of true maturity, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. That is Philip's translation of Romans 12, 2, I think, or maybe it's 3. Acceptance is the route to peace. It's the route to maturity. And that means a simple yes, Lord. When Mary was visited by the angel and told that she was going to be, that she had been chosen to be the mother of the Son of God, what was her response? Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Or in modern English, anything you say, Lord, I'll take it. And so I made up my mind at that point that I was going to accept what God gives me. So back to that petition, give us this day our daily bread. And I do believe with all my heart, and it's taken me a good many years to come to the point of real absolute trust in this, but I do now believe that everything that comes to me is from God in one way or another, including this fly. <laughs> and I really mean that. Everything that comes, comes through that hedge of his grace. It comes through those loving arms. It comes through the ramparts of his protection. And so there is a sense in which a little Norwegian motto, motto that Lars and I saw when we were way up in one of those Christmas card picture places in the snowy woods of Norway. There was a little, what they call a stabu in Norway, a little log cabin which used to be used for storing food. And these people who are relatives of Lars's had invited us up there for supper. And it was candlelight and a log cabin and I mean just exactly the way you imagine Norway was a thousand years ago and it still is in certain places. And on the wall was a motto in Norwegian. Well, which means I don't speak Norwegian. And uh, so I asked Lars, what does it mean? Well, it meant all is of grace. And I've always thought of that ever since. It's, I'm sure it's true. All is of grace. And just yesterday, as I was rethinking the things that I was going to say today, I came across a wonderful statement by Evelyn Underhill, and I quoted her earlier this morning. We are beset by nature and cherished by grace. Now you can put that one down too. And don't forget to put E-U, not E-E after that. Beset by nature. Now we are beset by nature when a fly comes and bothers us, right? We are beset by nature when the roast gets burned if the boss is coming for dinner. We are beset by nature when something happens to either make somebody we love sick or to kill them. Nature comes at us and we feel beset. But there's never a minute when we are not cherished by grace. And that ought to give us peace. But it's not going to unless 
unless, unless we say, yes, Lord, I'll take it. So we have the choice. Lift up your hands and say, Lord, I will receive this in Jesus' name. Or we can say, nope, no way. And if we pray, my will be done, as C.S. Lewis puts it, alas, it will be. In the end, you'll get what you want. If you want your will, that is the root to hell. That is the motto of hell, my will be done, or I am my own. The place in which thy will be done is the motto is heaven. And we can live in heaven now. We have already been translated into that kingdom. We can live in heavenly joy, heavenly peace, heavenly love, but on the same conditions in which they live in heaven, where everybody with the greatest joy and totally unhesitatingly does perfectly all the time the will of God. That is our choice. So this brings up the question of why God says no. And I do want to talk about that a little bit. I think my story of St. Augustine and his mother certainly is a, a clear, a loud and clear illustration of one situation in which God said no, and obviously it was for the best. So I'll give you five, five six reasons. Well, no, I'll give you seven reasons. And there are probably many more, but let's just stick with seven reasons for why God says no to our prayers. If you're a little confused about your outline, um, it's really all under that heading of, of give us this day our daily bread. That, that was the first thing that we talked about. Receiving what God wants to give us, and we could say relinquishing what God does not want to give us or what God wants to take away. Both require open hands, don't they? If your little boy is clutching a lollipop in one hand and you have an ice cream cone to give him, he probably wouldn't have much trouble dropping the lollipop in order to take the ice cream cone. But if you are offering him a plate of broccoli and you want him to get rid of the, of the lollipop, there's no way that he can receive the plate of broccoli until he gets rid of the lollipop. And it may be the other way around, too. You know, if he were, by some unimaginable situation, clutching on the broccoli and you wanted to give him a lollipop. But really, that's the way it is with God, isn't it? I mean, we're clutching a piece of broccoli when God wants to give us a plate of ice cream. And we have to let go in order to let God give us what it is that he wants to give us. So here are your one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first is for the sake of others. God says no to our prayers for the sake of other people. Remember, God is engineering a universe. He has millions, billions of things that have to be coordinated in order to work out his will. And he is in the process of working out that will every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year. So when I pray, I must remember that I'm only one sheep of his pasture. 
and God has all the rest of them in mind, and all the sheep that are not of his pasture. He loves them all, and he's engineering a universe which ultimately is all going to recognize, it says in the scriptures, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I don't know how that's going to happen. I love that, uh, those sacred words to the secular tune of Danny Boy. I'm sure most of you know that tune. I think it's one of the most beautiful tunes in the world. But there's a stanza of the sacred hymn which begin, the, the hymn itself is, I cannot tell. But there's a stanza that says, I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage, how satisfy the needs and aspirations of East and West, of sinner and of sage. But this I know, all flesh shall see his glory, and he shall reap the harvest he has sown. And some glad day his sun will shine in splendor when he, the savior of the world, is come. So God often has in mind other people whose lives will be affected by his saying no to my prayers. And I think you can imagine one example that I would think of right away. When my husband Jim and the other four men went into that dangerous Indian territory, we knew that nobody had ever come out of there alive that we knew of. There had been any number of people looking for oil and rubber and gold, and they had gone in there, but they had never been heard from again. So when the five men decided that it was indeed God's time for them to go in and make an attempt to have a friendly contact with these people, you can imagine how we five wives prayed for physical safety for our husbands, that God would bring them back safely. Now, when I got word that my husband was missing, God brought to mind Isaiah 43, 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. And I remembered that God was not telling me that I was going to be, uh, I was going to rejoice and see my husband back again. He was not promising that. He was simply saying, when you pass through the waters, I'll be there. And that I can guarantee to you. I don't know what God has in, the mi in mind for any one of us an hour from now. And sometimes young wives share with me their fear that they might, might lose a child or a husband. And all I can say to them is not, no, God would never do that to you, but if that is what, what God requires of you, I promise you, that the grace, all the grace that is needed, will be there at the time, because the promise in my Bible says he will give grace to help in time of need. Not in your imaginations, not in the awful pictures that you can paint of what might happen to your family, but in the actual fact, if it comes, when it comes, the grace will always be there. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. And probably every one of you could testify to the truth of that. So when I learned that Jim was dead, 
or I should say when I learned that Jim was missing, I was reminding the Lord of how Jim and his colleague Pete Fleming had taken over the work of Dr. Tidmarsh in a place called Shandia. And Dr. Tidmarsh's wife is here today. They were missionaries in the jungle of Ecuador for many years. And it was through correspondence with Dr. Tidmarsh and his wife that Jim and Pete went to Ecuador. And so when the Tidmarshes had left and had gone back up to Quito, they were still in, in the country, Jim and Pete were there rebuilding buildings that had been dilapidated through the work of termites and whatnot. And they had practically built a church um, on the foundation that Dr. Tidmarsh had laid, of course, but there were about 50 Indians that had been baptized in just those few years, uh, about three years that Jim and Pete had been there. So I was reminding the Lord of this church that needed Jim. And Jim and I were the only missionaries on that station at that time. Pete was on another one, and there was another missionary named Ed McCauley that was in another Quechua station. So I was saying, well, now, Lord, even if you don't think I need Jim back again, these Indians de desperately need him because Jim and I had just begun the translation of the book of Luke for them, and we had these newly baptized believers, and they desperately needed teaching. There wasn't anybody else to teach them because there wasn't anybody that had the Bible except Jim and me at that time. Well, Lord, if you don't think uh, the Indians need him, certainly Valerie needs him. She needs a father. And Lord, if you don't think that Valerie needs him, then could you just give some consideration to the fact that I need him and I've waited a long time for him? Well, God's answer to the prayer of physical safety was no. And when I got to know all the Indians who had done the killing and learned their language and asked them all the questions that a widow would certainly want to ask about how it happened and why it happened, the ironies simply began to multiply rather than unravel. And I learned that they had thought that the five men were cannibals. So naturally they were scared and they figured the only thing to do was to kill them before the five missionaries ate the Indians. Just an idea that came from nowhere. There's no cannibalism anywhere in South America that anyone knows about. Mystery is what we're up against. And it really isn't any of our business. Why? I was a little bit upset at the time of the death of these men by the seemingly glib editorializing that was done in some of the magazines and newspapers, Christian magazines and newspapers in this country, as though the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church was a sufficient answer for all of it. And the Lord has got to save the Alka Indians now because five men died. Well, suppose he never saved one. Would I not trust him then? Would I think that he had not vindicated himself? My attitude was, Lord, I don't need to know why. I know that your will is wise and powerful and loving. And I will leave it at that. But of course, in the years since, I've met hundreds, probably thousands of people whose lives have been deeply impressed by the lives of those five men. Thousands more than, they, than all five of them put together could ever have touched in the way that these people have been touched through their death. 
So that's just one illustration. God has a whole lot of things in mind that we can't even imagine. A New York subway policeman wrote to me to say that somebody had given him the story of Jim Elliot's life, Shadow of the Almighty. And he said, it, it changed my life. And I've had hundreds of men tell me that that book changed their lives. A second reason why God says no is for God's glory among his people. And these, you'll discover as you study them, are certainly overlapping reasons. If it's for the sake of others, it is also for the sake of God's glory. But there are times when it seems to be um, not for anything else except his glory among God's people. Now you remember that on the occasion when Moses was told to speak to the rock in order that the people might have water that God promised would spring from the rock, Moses by this time was so fed up with these people that he struck the rock in disobedience to God. Now God in his mercy didn't deprive the people of the water that they needed because of one man's disobedience. But Moses had to pay a very heavy price for that disobedience. And there's a lesson in there, put this in parenthesis, results do not prove that you have been obedient. We often make choices thinking, yes, but think how good it would be if I do this. Think of the results. Well, when five men went in to the Alcas, the result, as far as we knew, was that five men were dead. That didn't look as though that was the result one would expect from obedience, unless you really read the Bible, and of course you find out that all sorts of people died who were obedient to God, like John the Baptist and James and uh, Stephen and Jesus Christ himself. So Moses was punished and was never allowed to enter into Canaan because of his disobedience. And it says in Numbers 20, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, it wasn't Aaron that struck the rock, but Moses and Aaron were sharing responsibility, spiritual responsibility together. So God said this to Moses and Aaron, you did not trust me so far as to uphold my holiness in the sight of the Israelites. Therefore, you shall not lead this assembly into the land which I promised to give them. Such were the waters of Meribah, where the people disputed with the Lord and through which his holiness was upheld. God's glory among his people requires sometimes a no. And Moses desperately wanted to go into the promised land and after all those years of faithful service, leading that intractable people, he was not allowed. The answer was no. Third, because he has something better. And I refer you to Luke 11, verse 11 and 12, 11, 12, and 13. Is there a father among you who will offer his son a snake when he asks for fish, or a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If you then, bad as you are, know how to give your children what is good for them, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And an alternate reading of that is simply, uh, let's see if I can find this footnote, give good things or good gifts to them that ask him. Now the truth is that many of the things that we're asking God for are in the category of scorpions and snakes. 
but we don't know that. It would be very easy to confuse bread and stones from a distance sometimes. And this is one of the things that I try to say to the women who come to me, desperately wanting me to tell them that God has a husband for them. I say, only God knows if marriage is a good gift for you. I think of Amy Carmichael, a woman who knew when she was 20 years old that God wanted her to remain single. And she had several opportunities to marry. Now, I don't know very many who have that clear a call to singleness, but she did, not knowing why or what God was going to lead her into. But God made Amy Carmichael the mother of literally hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Indian children. And so he, has, he had something better for her. He had, he, and again, we could say numbers one, two, and three would all be involved there. He had the welfare of all those children who were going to need Amy Carmichael to be their amma, the Tamil word mother. He had also his glory, how God was glorified through the Donabur Fellowship in South India and through the 40 books that Amy Carmichael wrote while she was there. And he had something better for her, which was this enormously effective worldwide ministry that she could not have been prepared for in any other way. You don't know whether what you're asking is an egg or a scorpion. Will you say, Lord, I'll take it, whatever you give me? Then the fourth one. He may say no because we are harboring sin. He tells us in Psalm 66, 18, that if we harbor sin in our lives, he will not hear us. Psalm 66, 18. And then there's Proverbs 28, verse 9. If a man turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are an abomination. In other words, deliberate disobedience makes our prayers an abomination. So when you're not getting an answer to your prayers, be sure to pray the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and if, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're walking in the way everlasting, he will show you. He certainly will answer that prayer. God is much more interested that your heart be pure than you are. So pray, and he will show you. Number five, God says no to our prayers because we are not asking in his name. So often our prayers are selfish. We're not asking for the coming of the kingdom. We're not asking for God's will. We are banging on God's door and saying, I must have this. It may be selfish. It may be for my glory. It may be neither of those things, but unbeknownst to me, it may have absolutely nothing to do with God's will or God's glory. And we don't always know that. So that's number five. He will say no because we are not asking in his name. And to ask in his name, I trust you understand, means not asking selfishly, asking for his glory, and assuming that the answer that God gives will have something to do with his glory. Number six, God says no to our prayers for reasons of his own, which we do not now need to know. Reasons of his own. And I think of 
Gladys, Lars, how many minutes do I have? Do I have a time for a Gladys Aylward story? Thank you. Okay. Some of you probably heard this story, but I had the tremendous privilege many, many years ago of hearing Gladys Aylward, the tiny little woman who was called the small woman of China, four feet 11, a woman with a tremendous stentorian voice. She was built about like a toothpick, and she had a Chinese dress, perfectly straight, with this mandarin collar, and she had her sparse gray hair screwed up into a tiny little bun on the top, and she spoke with a voice that would not shatter glass, but it was a voice of thunder. And she kept us on the edge of our seats. And I remember one of the stories that she told. I don't think I've forgotten any of the stories she told. She was so electrifying. But one of them was that when she was growing up, she said, I had two great sorrows. She was a cockney from London. and. Anybody from England will know that this is really not a very accurate imitation. It's the best I can do. But she said, I had two great sorrows. One, that when all my friends had beautiful golden hair, mine was black. And the other, that when all my friends were still growing, I stopped. <laughs> well, then Jehovah God called her to China. And she told this incredible story of having no money and no mission board and had no idea where she was going. She had never even looked at a map of China before. But she took a train across Europe and across Russia and across China all by herself, one suitcase, a frying pan, and an umbrella strapped to the outside of it. And she got to Shanghai. And this story is told in a book called The Small Woman. It's not one of my books, and I'm not sure if it's still in print. But she said, I stood on the wharf and I looked around to all the people to whom Jehovah God had sent me. And every single one of them had black hair. <laughs> and every single one of them had stopped growing when I did. And I said, Lord God, you know what you're doing. Now, don't just remember the story, remember the message. <laughs> Two great sorrows, and those are great sorrows for a little girl. It was my great sorrow to keep on growing when everybody else had stopped. <laughs> and when I was 12 years old and in the eighth grade, I was five feet nine. And everybody says, oh, would you stop and think, when did you stop growing? Women generally do stop growing when they're about 12 or 13. Very few of us grow more than an inch beyond that. Anyway, I'm thankful that I did stop growing at the age of 12 since I was already five feet nine. But anyway, those are big sorrows for a little child. Don't ever belittle the magnitude of your children's sorrows. I remember Billy Graham telling how he'd, when he became a Christian, he knew that the girlfriend he had then had to go. And he said it was a great sorrow to him, a great pain and a big deal of making that commitment to God. And people said to him, oh, but it was only puppy love. And he said, but it sure was hard on the puppy. <laughs> What's the point here? 
God has reasons we don't know a thing about and we do not need to know. He says, trust me. And number seven, and this fits right into our saying of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. In order to answer that prayer, God has to say no to some other prayers. I don't suppose that there's anybody in this room praying that God will help her to win the lottery. Maybe there is. I just heard last couple days ago, Lars was down in Florida, and I heard on the TV that the Florida lottery was $50 million that week. So I asked Lars if he'd bought a ticket. Well, of course, <laughs> he hadn't, and he never does. But let's just suppose that I should ask God to help me win the lottery. I think the chances are practically 100% that, that, that a yes to that would lead me into all kinds of temptation. And when I pray, lead me not into temptation, only God knows the things which will become a snare or a sorrow. And I've had many letters from women who have married the wrong husband. And it has been a snare and a sorrow. And maybe they were among those who banged away on God's door and said, you've got to give me a husband. And you know the verse in the Psalms that says, he gave them their request and sent leanness into their souls. Lead us not into temptation, if God is going to answer that one with a yes, he has to answer, he has to answer all, maybe 10 others with a no. So I'll run through those very quickly in case you've missed any. Number one, God says no for the sake of others. Number two, for God's glory among his people. Number three, because he has something better. Number four, because we are harboring sin. Number five, because we are not asking in his name. Number six, for reasons of his own, which we do not now need to know. And number seven, in order to lead us not into temptation. Charles H. Brent wrote, prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to man's desires as it is that whereby man's will is bent to God's desires. I'll read it again. Prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to man's desires as it is that whereby man's will is bent to God's desires. I want to be a cooperator with God. I want to be a member of his rescue party for the sake of the world. He was broken bread and poured out wine for you and me. He says, will you come with me? Will you give up your right to yourself? Will you take up the cross? Will you follow me? Those are the conditions if you want to be my disciple. Will you say, I will, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thy will be done at any cost. May God give us grace to say yes, yes, yes. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>